All right. Hello, Social Work 6370 students. What we're going to do on today's podcast lecture is a few things. First thing, we're going to review the things that we've talked about in the class so far. Reviewing things is good. It helps keep them fresh in your mind. After we do our review, what we're going to do is kind of lay out the plan for the podcast lecture today. And then what we're going to do is we are going to attempt to execute that plan. Now, I say attempt because there's something important that I've learned in all the years that I've been doing the things that I've been doing. There's something about plans. doesn't matter. There are only four rules you need to remember. Make the plan, execute the plan, expect the plan to go off the rails, throw away the plan. So now that you've heard that, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, I'm going to tell you what my plan is, and then I'm going to you know, eventually start to execute it. And who knows what happens then? Maybe I start talking about the things that I thought I was going to talk about. Maybe I get lost in some kind of side street cul-de-sac tangent thing. Who knows? We're going to find out as we go through this. But first, the review. All right. So one of the things that we've been talking a lot about, I mean, quite a bit about over the past two weeks, is the idea of principles. And I hope that you're not bored with that because it's something that we're going to keep coming back to. Principles. My claim is that principles are things that when we have them, and not everybody does have them, but when we do have them, they can be really useful. And they can be useful because we can orient ourselves by figuring out, are we getting closer to those principles? Are we getting farther away from them? One way we could think about this is when we have principles, we can answer the question, who are you? What kind of person are you? What kind of social worker are you? That sort of thing. And in addition to that, where are you going? Are you going in the direction that makes you more into the kind of social worker, the kind of person, the kind of clinician that you'd like to be? Or do you feel as though maybe you're getting further away from that? And when I I bring this up, I want to make something really clear. There are going to be times, I think, I'm pretty sure, there are going to be times where you do feel like you are not going in the direction that you want to go in. I am pretty positive that if you're like me and most of the people I know who've been doing this for a long time, you're going to find yourself in situations where you make mistakes. And when you make mistakes, one of the reasons that you're going to know it's a mistake is you're going to realize that you're sliding further away from a principled position. You're sliding further away from the you that you want to be from the kind of social worker, the kind of clinician, the kind of therapist that you would imagine yourself being and feeling happy about it, right? You're, you're not doing that. Those things will happen. Those days will happen. And, you know, one of the things that's great about principles is if we have principles, we can recognize that. We can recognize that when it's happening. We can recognize it, I think, faster than if we don't have them. And we can start to to go, okay, I need to do something. I need to do something different. I need to change course. I need to take some kind of an action that will, you know, prevent me from drifting further off course, from turning more into the person I don't want to be and put me back on course, moving towards the kind of person, the kind of social worker that I do want to be. So principles, yeah, principles are really important. My other argument is that principles are different than rules and standards. I don't want to make the claim that rules and standards are bad. I do not think that. I do want to make the claim that they're not principles, that those things are different. So as long as you understand those things, you're pretty much caught up with me on that score. The other thing that we started to talk about last week is ethics. Now, ethics is one of those things that I think can really 
go along with principles quite a bit. When somebody wants to act in an ethical way, I would argue that they will find it easier if they have principles. They have to, and principles can come from a lot of places. You can, you know, discover principles in something like a code of ethics or in a philosophical text or in um, a religious ethos. I don't know. There's, there's all sorts of places that will offer you principles and you can take those and you can hobble them together in whatever way you want to. And some of them are going to be your own creation, do your own experiences. And, and when you have that, I think what will happen is you'll be able to act in a more ethical way. I told you a story in the class about a former colleague of mine who I believe acted in a very ethical way when they made a choice to do something. And the, the choice that they made, you know, went against the policy of the place where this person worked. Uh, but she made that choice in that moment because she recognized that following the policy would have one violated her principles and two, because it violated her principles, been unethical and she didn't want to do those things. And so she made a different choice and that's part of what I wanted to share with you. So that's our, our catch up so far for today. Where are we going to go from here? I'm so glad you asked. Here's where we're going to go. On today's podcast, what I'm going to do is I'm going to start to tackle some of the themes and concepts that I think start to come up in chapter four and in the NASW cultural standards, both of which you were supposed to have read for today. Uh, what I'm going to be talking to you about is something that I've noticed happen, I think, in social work practice uh, enough of the time that it, I think it's something you should know about. It's a very common mistake that I've seen numerous people make, and I want to describe that mistake to you, and in describing it to you, hopefully, you know, help you recognize when it's being made by yourself and other people so that you can be like, you can ask those very important questions. Wait, what's going on here? Who are we? Where are we going? Who are you? Where are you going? Who am I? Where am I going? You'll, if, you, if you have the foreknowledge, if you've been forewarned about a very common mistake, I, I hope that you'll be able to avoid it. So that's the first thing we're going to do. Then after that, what I want to do is add to the things that you've read. I want to talk to you about a thinker named Emmanuel Levinas, who's not mentioned in chapter four and who's not mentioned in the NASW cultural standards, but he's a really important thinker for ethics, I think, and especially for thinking about ethical behavior when engaging with people who happen to be from a rather different cultural background, a different walk of life than yourself. So that's the plan. Let's see how it goes. Let's get started. So the thing I want to start this section of the podcast lecture off with is a kind of term that gets thrown around a lot in social work and, and I think a lot of other professions too, for that matter. It's a two word term. The term is cultural competency. And it's an interesting term for a lot of reasons. One reason is that it's a kind of problematic term. What do I mean when I say that it's problematic? I'm going to try to explain that here. And in explaining it, also try to, if I can, teach you something that I think is interesting and useful. So here it is. Um, 
I have noticed that when people, anybody really, believes that they are being culturally competent or that they have achieved cultural competence, like they think they're doing it, that is when they inadvertently make errors and end up behaving in ways that are what we might call culturally incompetent. And I, I don't know if that really captures it. I want to say a little bit more here. Uh, my idea is that, you know, if you encounter people, groups of people, individual people who come from a different cultural background than you do, one of the things that you can do is you can think to yourself like, oh, I've had cultural competency training. I know how to approach this individual, this group of people who's different than me because I know cultural competency. And you'll go in like feeling kind of um, confident or possibly arrogant because you feel like you know the things that you need to know. And so, so when people do that, when they have that kind of like swagger, I think that's when they make mistakes. And the reason I think they're good, they make mistakes is because they think that they're not going to. People who think they are going to make mistakes, who are aware that it's possible and in fact even likely that they will make mistakes, they're the ones who then try to be cautious. They're the ones who then go, okay, because I could make a mistake, I'm going to try not to. The people who think, I know what I need to know, therefore I will not make a mistake, they're the ones who absolutely make mistakes. All right, so let's uh, let's try to make this make sense by making a bit of a comparison here. One of my first gigs in the field of mental health was working in a substance abuse treatment center. And I noticed something when I worked in the substance abuse treatment center. And what, I, it, what it was is that some people would come in and, you know, they'd go through the program and it would come time for them to, to leave to be discharged. And they would say something like, thank you so much. I'm, I'm glad I spent this time here. And I've learned all the things I need to learn. You know, I came in here thinking one way and now I'm thinking a different way. I, I'm going to be okay. I, I know what I need to know to have a clean and sober lifestyle. You don't need to worry about me. You've taught me well, and I'm going to take all of the things that I learned here and I'm going to apply them out in the world. And because I'm going to do that, you don't need to worry about me. Those were the people who left thinking that they had figured something out, that they knew something, that the, the secret of how to live well when you have an addiction problem had been imparted to them and they left and they didn't think they needed to be careful about relapsing because they just believed that they would never do it. They did usually, right? I would say, you know, nine out of 10 times people who left with that attitude. I don't, you don't need to worry about me. I am definitely not going to relapse. There's no way it's going to happen. They did. Now a much smaller number of people would get to the end of the program. When they got to the end, what they would say is, you know, I'm kind of worried. And, you, and when they'd say that, I'd ask them, what are you worried about? And they're like, you know, in here, everything is kind of set up for me to succeed, right? It's kind of easy to succeed in here. This is, this is a place that tries to help you succeed. You know, you and the other people who are here, they, they want you to succeed. The world's not like that. The world a lot of times can be like totally mean or indifferent to your success or failure. It's going to be a lot harder when I leave. You know, I'm really scared that, uh, you know, at a certain point, I'm going to go out into the real world. I'm going to have a bad day and I'm going to be in a bad mood. 
and somebody's going to tell me, hey, do you want to drink or do you want to use drugs? And I'm going to say, yeah, I do. And I'm going to relapse. Here's the weird thing. The people who went out with that fear that they were going to screw up, that they were going to relapse, that they were going to make a mistake. Sometimes they did, but a lot of times they didn't. And the reason I think they didn't is because they were scared that they would. They believed, one, it is possible for me to make a mistake. Two, it is actually likely that I will make a mistake. And so they, they were like kind of, and maybe I, I don't want to use this word, but I can't think of a better one. They were kind of paranoid that they were going to screw up. And that paranoia that they were going to screw up meant that they went about their days in a very cautious fashion and tried to put things in place that would make it less likely that they would screw up. But they were, they were thinking about it a lot. They were trying. So here's, let's kind of put these, to get, these two together, right? I started off talking about the person who believes I am culturally competent. These are the people who I think are actually the least culturally competent a lot of times. Then I followed that up by talking about, you know, people who have addiction issues and the addict who believes I'm cured of my addiction. They're the ones who tend to continue to have problems with their addiction. The addict who goes, Hey, I'm always going to, I have a problem and I'm probably going to screw up. They're the ones who are less likely to screw up. It's weird. It's paradoxical, right? That this is how things work, but it is how things seem to work. If you think I'll screw up, you try to not screw up. If you think it's, you won't screw up, you don't try to not screw up and then you end up screwing up. That's kind of the point that I'm trying to make here. And, uh, I don't know. Yeah. You're smart, right? You get this. You understand what I'm saying. Uh, I hope you do. What I want you to do with this, if you can, is think about this because I want to just sort of like talk about this here on the podcast lecture now like this, but I would really like to extend this conversation into the time that we have together when we are a class, when we're all in the same spot, either on Zoom or in the classroom or whatever. I want us to, to continue this conversation of the error of assuming that one is competent. I want to talk to you about a thinker who is not mentioned anywhere in the text that you read for this class, but he's a thinker that I think is important, and uh, hopefully you'll be able to see why as I talk about him. The thinker's name is Emmanuel Levinas, and he was an ethical philosopher. Uh, he was French. He was extremely interested, concerned with ethics. He wrote a lot about ethics. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about his background. So he was a, a Jew, French Jewish guy. I think he was originally, his family might've been originally from Belgium, but they were living in France at the time that World War II broke out. And a young Emmanuel Levinas, who I think was a student at the time, uh, 
He might have been like a graduate student. I'm not sure. He was a student of some kind. He joined the military and he went off to the front to fight against the Nazi German forces that were invading France. And he was taken prisoner while he was doing that. And, you know, the, the German army took soldiers, you know, they were, they were prisoners of war and they, they put them in a POW camp that probably saved Emmanuel Levinas from a much more dire fate being put in a POW camp was better, you know, than being put into one of what we nowadays would call a concentration camp, uh, the death camps that existed during World War II. And while he was in the POW camp, he had to do lots and lots of, it was clear that he was Jewish. He had to do labor. Uh, The Nazis who were in charge of the camp did not treat him or his fellow prisoners very well. You know, they treated them extremely badly. They're doing a lot of work without very much food and whatnot. Life was hard when he was going through this. I mean, that's an understatement. Life was probably extremely, massively, unimaginably difficult. But he was getting through it, him and these people. And uh, as he was going through this, he was writing things down from time to time. He was noticing things. He was writing things down. And one of the things that he noticed was that, you know, it's he thought, how can these people, these Germans who you know, are the the guards of this prison that I'm in. How is it that they can treat me and other people the way that they do? And he starts to piece together a theory about it. And his theory is, goes something like this. This isn't exactly it, but it'll give you the gist. Human beings will treat other human beings as though they were not actually human beings, as if they were just objects. The same way, you know, we, we can take objects and we can treat objects badly. There's a bunch of objects on the desk that I'm sitting at right now. I could pick one of these objects up and throw it in a garbage can and not really think too much about it because it's an object. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have feelings. You know, I'm, I'm picking up a pen. If, if I throw this pen out, the pen still works. It's a functional pen, but I could, I could get rid of it. I could, um, I could do, I could light it on fire, I guess, if I wanted to. I really couldn't. I don't have a lighter here, but... Uh, You get the point here, right? I could treat this object bad and I wouldn't feel bad about treating it bad because it's an object, uh, really. It's, It's okay to do that. You know, now if something is alive, we have a harder time possibly treating it badly. But even, you know, the way that we treat animals, uh, is different than the way that we treat human beings, right? Like, uh, can you imagine anybody saying that they're going to take their, you know, aging, grandparent to who has, you know, cancer to uh, a place where they're going to be put down, you know, or something like that, the way that we do that with dogs and cats, probably not. Uh, that, that seems like it'd be kind of hard to imagine. Uh, we, we see people as different. We see people as people. We see them as not just animals and not just objects. We see them as people. And Levinas noticed that one of the things that has to happen in order for human beings to treat other human beings extremely badly is we have to stop seeing them as if they were human beings and start seeing them as if they were animals or objects. If we can do that, if we can transform, you know, in our mind's eye, a human being, a human body into just an animal 
or into just an object, then we feel like it's okay to treat it as if it were just an animal or as if it were just an object. And so that's kind of one of the things that he realizes. And he has a, a word for this. He calls it um, defacing the human body. And he has this idea that, that human beings have a face. And, you know, if you, if you look somebody in, in, there's this saying we have in our, our culture, right? It's a thing, you know, look me in the eye when you say that. It, 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 maybe the eye isn't important. Maybe it's like, look, look at my face. Say that to my face. It's another thing that we say, right? There's this idea that if you come face to face with another person, they have a face, you have a face, you're both human beings. And, and that becomes this kind of like mutually recognized thing. And in that moment, it becomes really more difficult to treat this other person who's a person just like you, who has a face just like you badly. It, it's more difficult to do that. This is a bit of a sidebar here. This is really interesting. I think especially now because so much of our interactions are taking place online. And it seems to me that there's a lot of argument, a lot of fighting, a lot of rudeness and being extremely demeaning and insulting to other people online. And I don't know if I'm right about this, but my guess is that that would be a lot harder to do if you were talking to a person face to face. If you took their body and your body and put it in the same spot and actually had a conversation with them, even if they thought things were totally different from what you think, it might be more difficult for you to, to be really rude and disrespectful to them. And likewise, I think it would be really more difficult for them to be really rude and disrespectful to you. You know, you could disagree on important things like gun control and, I don't know, abortion or religion. I, I don't know, right? But it... You know what I mean? When, when you're sitting with somebody and you're talking to them, even if they're, they think things that you don't like and, or that you disagree with or that you, dis, they, you disagree with and you really don't like, you still recognize this is another person. I, and, and because they're another person, you, you treat them with a monicum of dignity and respect, I hope, right? And I hope that they would do the same back to you. But when, when they're not there physically, I think it becomes a lot easier to do this thing that Levinas talked about, this defacing, this seeing somebody not as a, another human body, the way that you are a human body in the world, but as just like this thing, this object that's out there and you can treat it however you want to, right? So that's one of Levinas's first things that he comes up with. And he writes a lot about how this happens, about how it is that people become able to do this procedure of defacing. And we're going to talk more about that when we meet as a class. Here's an interesting thing that, that happens to him while he's in the POW camp. He recognized uh, one day him and him and he was on this work crew. And like I said, they were, they had to do really very, very, very difficult physical labor for many hours of the day. And then they had to come back and get a little bit of food and get a little bit of sleep and go back and do the labor again. And you know, if they started to talk to each other, the guards were like, hey, you don't talk to that. Shut up. They'd say insulting things to them. They'd, they'd hit them. They'd, they'd be mean and cruel. Well, one day when they were coming back uh, into this POW camp, there was like a stray dog that had found the camp. And the stray dog, you know, came up to them and it wagged its tail and it licked their hands and it, it was happy to see them. And he talked about how because of that small act of 
compassion that came from a dog that people in his group that had started to give up or had actually given up and were just kind of in the beginning processes of letting their bodies die, that they, they started to come back from that. They started to act as if there was a reason to live because somebody, not somebody, something, a dog, showed their body kindness, showed them compassion, was happy to see them, treated them as if they were human beings and not objects, right? It's, it's wild when you think about this, that this, this thing happened. Eventually, I guess the dog got chased away by the guards, but you know, it, this, this had happened already. The, the dog had done this thing, provided this service to people. I think this is one of the reasons why service animals are actually like kind of a cool and really good idea when they're used appropriately. This story makes me think that. So anyways, that's, that's, that's Levinas. He, and, and like I said, I wanted to sort of introduce you to his thinking here. I'm not going to do an exhaustive thing on Levinas. I don't have the time. But I think his ideas are interesting and I think they're important. And I think they're very useful. And I do want to talk about them more. Um, but before we wrap up this section of the podcast, I want to leave you with something that I kind of came to, I think, because of my own attempt to be a principled person, to have principles that I use to orient myself and somebody who's interested in ethics and having ethical lives. I want to talk to you about this, right? And it has, this, to me, this comes directly out of this bit about Levinas, right? This, we live in a world right now where the propensity to be, I don't know, in competition with other people, to be sort of like seeing them as an enemy, seeing them as somebody who's on the wrong side, who's going after things that are important to you and trying to destroy them to, to sort of vilify people where that's very strong. It, it, that, that's one of those things that can maybe lead to defacing. And, and my study of Levinas has made me think the following thing. You know, if you, if me, if we really want to see a world where kindness is stronger than violence, if we do want to see that world, we do have the means. The means are to be kind to other people, to be kind to ourselves and others, especially the others who are very difficult to be kind to. They're the ones who probably need to be the most kind to, but you know, I don't want to get too preachy on this. The, the, I've probably already done that though, but whatever. If we, I believe, if we treat other people and ourselves with kindness, real kindness, that it becomes so much more likely that other people and ourselves might actually try to build a better world, right? So that's, that's my finishing remarks for you. On that note, I'm going to let you go about whatever it is that you're about to do when you're done listening to this. Thank you for taking the time to listen to it. I will see you all in class. But until then, please make glorious mistakes. <laughs>